You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of NCBA's Beltway Beef. I'm Hunter Earman, and today I'm joined by Mary Thomas Hart, NCBA's chief counsel, to discuss two important agricultural cases that are currently before the Supreme Court. October has been a busy month for the court, and I want to start with the case Sackett versus EPA, which deals with this longstanding issue facing the cattle industry, Waters of the U.S., or WOTUS. Uh, Mary Thomas, could you provide us some background on this case? Of course. Uh, You know, it's been a pretty quiet year in D.C. when we think about WOTUS. We've had a lot of other issues kind of uh, percolating, but as quickly as WOTUS kind of quieted down maybe a a year or so ago, it it perked back up uh, pretty recently. So on October 3rd, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Sackett versus EPA, which is the fourth time that the court has considered the definition of waters of the U.S. under the Clean Water Act. Um, This case is following uh, Rapanos versus U.S., which was quite a number of years ago at this point, about 2005 or 2006. And in that case, there was actually no majority opinion of the court. There was a fractured 4-1-4 decision, and we got a couple different tests from the court, you know, for what was considered a WOTUS. Now, that case and that fractured opinion is what led EPA and Army Corps down this road of, you know, trying to develop a regulatory definition. And we've gone back and forth from the Obama rule to the Trump rule to the Biden rule. Um, And hopefully this case, Sackett versus EPA, will allow the court to tell us once and for all which tests should be used to determine jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. What can you infer from the justices' questions during oral arguments in this case? You know, I think it was really interesting to listen, especially to the six justices who were considering WOTUS for the first time, right? We've had a lot of change on the bench in the last 15 years. And so watching these these new justices, relatively new justices, um, talk through Uh, the Rapanos test, the significant nexus test, the continuous service connection test, um, and then also, you know, try to consider if those are the best options, right? I think one thing that was a pretty clear takeaway from oral arguments last week was that there is a desire among especially these six newer justices to look for a third option. And they even said that a number of times. They asked uh, counsel on both sides of the case, you know, is there a third option? Is there something else that we should be looking for? Is there some middle ground that's going to adequately protect the nation's waters while also providing landowners the certainty that they need? You know, at the same time that the Supreme Court is hearing the Sackett case, the EPA is also trying to finalize the Biden administration's WOTUS rule. So how is this court's ruling in Sackett going to influence that rulemaking process? Great question. Um, You know, I think right now it it kind of feels like a race to the finish line. You know, EPA has told us that they plan to finalize their third version of a regulatory definition by the end of this year. We know that the Supreme Court has now had oral arguments and we'll get an opinion from them likely uh, before next summer. So, you know, it could be January, February, it could be uh, spring, it could be, you know, on into the beginning of the summer next year. And so, you know, I think there is certainly the risk that we finalize a rule 
at the administration level that we get this new regulatory definition and then a Supreme Court opinion comes down that will require the EPA and Army Corps to go back once again and rewrite or kind of rework this definition of WOTUS. So regardless of you know what order we get those opinions and rules in, I think there's going to be a lot of work to do and, and probably some ping-ponging back and forth over the next couple of years when it comes to the WOTUS definition. So the Sacketts who are bringing this case up to the Supreme Court, they're not cattle producers and they're not actually involved in agriculture in any way. They're homeowners. So how does that uh, demonstrate how a WOTUS definition impacts all of these different various groups beyond just agriculture? You know, I think that it shows a perfect example of why when we engage in the WOTUS conversation, our work and, and our coalition, I guess, of partners in this space is an incredibly broad coalition, right? We work with the home builders. We work with the the mining association. We work with the electric utilities because regardless of, you know, how you're using land in the United States, if you are using land in any way in this country, there's a chance that you are going to be subject to Clean Water Act regulation, Clean Water Act permitting requirements. And the more expansive that definition of WOTUS is, the more everyday landowners are going to be impacted. So, you know, our our coalition, our, our, our team on this issue is incredibly broad. It includes agricultural groups as well as, you know, other industries. Well, the other major agricultural case before the court is National Pork Producers Council versus Karen Ross. This case deals with hog production in California's Proposition 12. So why is NCBA involved in the case? This case is, is very different from WOTUS. Um, it gets into a really weedy constitutional issue called the Dormant Commerce Clause. Um, and the Dormant Commerce Clause deals with issues um, related to a state passing a law that has a an unjustifiable impact on out-of-state production or, or out-of-state sales in that state. So in this situation, the state of California um, enacted a policy that would require all pork sold in the state of California to comply with certain gestation crate requirements. The issue is that there are no large-scale hog operations in California. So this policy almost wholly regulates activity that occurs out of its own state. And California is such a large state that, you know, any hog producer that wants to engage in interstate commerce would likely have to uh, require, would have to follow these California mandates in order to ensure that that their product can be sold across state lines. Um, So the question presented to the court is, you know, is that something is that constitutional under the Commerce Clause of the, under of the Constitution? Um, the National Pork Producers and American Farm Bureau argued that it's not. Um, California obviously argued that it is. And NCBA submitted an amicus brief in support of the National Pork Producers' position. Now, as I understand it, the National Pork Producers and NCBA are on the same side of the case, but the federal government also looked like uh, was taking that position as well with the Solicitor General. Uh, why is that the case? You're correct. Yes. So we were, I'm going to say, surprised to see that the the government, the Biden administration, submitted a brief in support of the National Pork Producers Council. Um, and I think that this case brings up a really important question that we have to consider when it comes to a lot of issues. You know, obviously, NCBA 
Um, and cattle producers, I think, generally value states' rights, right, and, and allowing decisions and, and policies to be developed as close to the local level as possible. Um, but there is this balancing test about, you know, when when can states' rights go too far, right? And when does one state have the right to regulate activities that happen across state lines? So, um, you know, I think that this case certainly has broader implications, much broader implications beyond gestation crate sizes for hog production. Um, and so that is that is the key to the Biden administration's engagement as well as their support of NPPC. So the Dormant Commerce Clause is not one of those constitutional provisions I think of right away when I think, uh, you know, big constitutional Supreme Court case. So is it common that agriculture is part of the Dormant Commerce Clause or is this something kind of new for us? I don't think it's weird that the Dormant Commerce Clause is um is not something that people frequently think of when they think of constitutional law. I took a year of constitutional law courses and still don't often think of the Dormant Commerce Clause. Um, but actually, a lot of the Supreme Court's cases that have dealt with the Cormac, Dormant Commerce Clause um, involve agricultural production and food sales. Because when we talk about, you know, food sales and commodity sales in the United States, often those are those are food products, you know, moving across state lines and being subject to these different, you know, state rules. So there are a number of dormant commerce clause cases uh, related to dairy production. One of the most famous dormant commerce clause cases that the Supreme Court considered is related to apple sales in North Carolina and apples that are grown in Washington versus North Carolina. So, you know, even though this is a pretty um, uh, a pretty obscure <laughs> constitutional question, it is one that pro probably has an outsized impact uh, on agricultural production and agricultural producers. Based on the questions that the justices were asking, uh, how do you think the court is considering this issue? To me, it seemed like the court is is looking at a couple of things. There is an existing balancing test that the Supreme Court has developed in regards to the Dormant Commerce Clause um, that would require the court to kind of balance the burden on one state that's being regulated. So in this case, the, the burden on Iowa hog producers compared to the benefit to California consumers, right? So that is called the Pike test, and they will probably conduct some form of that balancing test when, when determining this case. Another kind of third question that came up during oral arguments yesterday, um, specifically from the newest justice on the bench, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, she seemed very interested in whether there was a more narrow option to achieve the same goal for the state of California, right? If, if California's goal is to ensure that consumers are able to eat, um, quote unquote, a moral pork, uh, that's, that's what the state called it, then perhaps there is some other option that's not so restrictive on all pork producers across the country um, that would allow consumers to be aware um, and make a, a more informed 
purchasing decision while also potentially putting money back in the pocket of the producer. And so um, there were conversations about, you know, a labeling requirement or, you know, a labeling program that came up. Um, so I think that, that that's certainly going to be an interesting part of the deliberation for the justices. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see something related to um, a more narrow option in the court's opinion. So now that the court has heard oral arguments in these two cases, what happens next? So uh, now we wait. It's it's a waiting game, and it entirely depends on you know what order the court wants to issue decisions in, uh, what other cases the court is decision is considering, how busy the court is this season. Um, we've gotten opinions from the Supreme Court as early as you know, January after arguments in October and November um, and as late as June. So I think, you know, we're waiting at least uh, three months until we get an opinion in these two cases, um, and at most probably eight or nine months. Um, but we will get opinions in both of these cases within the next year, um, and that will have significant effect on national policy. Um, and in the case of Prop 12, will will significantly impact how state legislatures operate um, their ability to pass new state laws that, that impact out-of-state activity. Can you just walk us through a bit how the court actually goes about coming up with these decisions and having uh, the justices figure out who will write the decisions and some of that process? Of course. So every year, I think, you know, it's important to start at the beginning. Every year, thousands of cases are briefed up to the Supreme Court, right? Uh, parties from, you know, so many cases uh, petition the court for certiorari, um, but the court only grants certiorari to a very small number of cases, very select cases, which is you know, why when you're granted certiorari, that's considered the first win, right? Just being heard by the Supreme Court, just, you know, for the Supreme Court to see value in your case, in your question, um, that's a pretty big deal. So after that, we go through a briefing process where a number of briefs are submitted to the court and then oral arguments are heard. So that's, that's where we are in these two cases. And then after that, the court will have conference days, um, days that are designated with no oral arguments for the justices to sit in a conference room and really, you know, get into the weeds of the cases. You know, they talk through briefs, they talk through, um, they talk through oral arguments, they, they deliberate. And at the end of that conference day, they vote. And then after a vote is cast, you know, it could be 9-0, Seven two six three five four. Um, after the vote is cast, and we know who's in the majority and the minority. Obviously, this is all still confidential. Um, the process of assigning opinions begins. So, if the chief justice is in the majority, he has the first choice. He can write the majority opinion if he chooses. Um, if he chooses not to, he will then assign the opinions to two other justices in the majority. And then other justices, if they're not chosen to write the majority opinion, can write concurring opinions, can, you know, write, ha always have the opportunity to write opinions. But, you know, there is a more formal selection process um, when it comes to determining who gets to write the opinion of the court. Um, and then 
they'll work for months on putting those draft opinions together. Um, they'll work through multiple drafts. The drafts will be circulated to all of the justices. Edits will come back. Justices may decide to write concurring opinions based on what they see in the court's opinion and in the majority opinion. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth that happens over that few months. And then only when all of the opinions are ready and settled on um, is the opinion released. And the opinion is kind of released in a packet. So you get the majority opinion, the concurring opinions, and the dissenting opinions all at one time. Um, so that is that is the process uh, that we're waiting to, to let unfold. So NCBA has you as our in-house attorney. So how does uh, having legal specialists on staff help us advocate for cattle producers more effectively? Well, of course, I think that it's very important to have uh, legal counsel on staff. Um, we were able to engage in both of these cases uh, as amicus parties um, in slightly different ways. So in the Sackett case, we actually drafted our brief in-house. So um, we were able to submit a brief on our own that made a very, I think, unique argument to the court. Um, and after hearing oral arguments in the Sackett case, I believe that the arguments that we presented in our amicus brief could be viable going into the conferencing uh, period. We proposed a, a middle-of-the-road test that is a two-part test that requires the the use of physical the existence of physical indicators and some flow metric in order to determine jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. I think that after oral arguments, that is a test that the court could take very seriously. So it would be really exciting to see something, you know, close to our test be adopted by the court. Um, and then in the National Pork Producers case, um, NCBA was able to join an amicus effort uh, with two other trade associations. So that's kind of, that's an example of, you know, ways that we're able to engage. Obviously, um, I work with other attorneys at other trade associations and I'm able to kind of, you know, read through, edit, and write briefs um, in-house, which I think saves NCBA a lot of really valuable resources um, because we have, we have all of that under one roof. Well, Mary Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Hunter. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, including SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.